Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. making our free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR Melbourne on Boonwurrung land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. My name is Mara. Independent and Peaceful Australia, or IPAN, advocate for an Australia free of foreign military bases and free of interventions by other foreign governments, corporations or vested interests that seek to exert undue influence in shaping Australia's foreign and defence policies in a manner that diminishes Australia's sovereignty. They have recently launched a people's inquiry exploring the case for an independent and peaceful Australia. The inquiry will explore the questions, what are the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in US-led wars and the US alliance, and what are the alternatives? The inquiry has seven pillars, First Nations, Economic, Social and Community, Environment and Climate, Military and Defence, Foreign Policy, Political and Democratic Rights and Union and Workers' Rights. This week we hear from some of the speakers at the recent People's Inquiry launch. First, we'll hear from the Chair of the Inquiry, Kelly Tranter, who is a lawyer and investigative journalist. I too would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. May I thank IPAN, particularly Annette Brownlee, for inviting me to be a part of the first national public inquiry into the costs and consequences of the Australia-US alliance and what are the alternatives. May I also say what a privilege it is to be given the opportunity to work alongside the panel of experts, Alison, Jeannie, Greg, Ian, Terry, Vince, Chad and Peter, who collectively bring such depth of knowledge experience, wisdom and energy to the conversation. Condensing the views of many experts to date on on the direction in which we must head in terms of defence and foreign policy, the general consensus is that our aim is to be a responsible, independent middle power, taking a more independent position with multilateral organisations. Be respected internationally, not only for our moral clarity, integrity and values, but also for our domestic governance systems constructive global activism and human rights advocacy, provided always that what we espouse must be consistent with what we practice at home. Recapture our strategic independence, recognise the paramount importance of peace in the Pacific to our national interests. Understand that our future lies in Southeast Asia and make our way in Asia ourselves. Develop a coalition of interests, make our way more strategically and prioritise our own security and accept that we can't squeeze China down and that Asia will not be shaped by US military force or economic measures. Achieving our aims requires leadership. We are a competent people and should be a confident country. Our political leaders need to expend some political capital and time doing these things to prepare us for the new era that is dawning. We need leaders with imagination, courage and intelligence who will put the nation's interests before their own. People who recognise that a time of change has come, who have sensible views about how it should be met, and who can provide the leadership to drive change forward. The current status is perhaps best summed up by Paul Keating when he said there's, quote, nothing ever impressive about Australia's foreign policy, close quotes. 
We're a dependent middle power. We wait for signals from Washington before we speak. There are not enough of our own foreign policy achievements. There are few examples of Australia deciding what it wants in the world, working out how to get there and taking steps to achieve that. Australia is too closely tied to the United States, as we all know. In July 2019, the US made a $300 million push to expand naval facilities in the Northern Territory, with 2,500 Marines being rotated through Darwin in recent times. It is unlawful and morally wrong to let another country take us to any war of aggression, but it is despicable to do so when those wars are based on lies and misinformation. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria are the most recent examples. Apropos Afghanistan, too little reflection has come now following the release of the Brereton Report. The first Australian parliamentary debate about the war didn't take place until October 2010, after we'd been there nearly a decade, and only after activists, lawyers, independent journalists, diplomats and humanitarian organisations had been publicly agitating for it. A month later, it was reported that the then Defence Minister Stephen Smith had cracked down on media coverage of the war in Afghanistan, gagging senior Defence Force officers and insisting that any media inquiries to the Defence Force be diverted to his office. Defence Force personnel were also barred from talking to the media during the parliamentary debate on the war. The point missed by mainstream media is point 38 of the Brereton Report, which by inference suggests that the government has allowed defence to operate independently on foreign soil and without proper supervision. That is culpable in itself. And even accepting that the principles of ministerial responsibility and of military chains of command meshed with responsibility seem to have been thrown by the wayside, cannot continue. On 18 November, Australia was still waiting for a decision from Trump on an Afghanistan troop withdrawal so we could follow suit, even though our government was sitting on the horrific findings of the Brereton Report, which was released publicly the next day. So we have a report saying there's credible evidence our soldiers have committed war crimes and we're still waiting on Washington to tell us what to do. How many lives could have been saved if all individual members of parliament and the Australian people were permitted to air their concerns and openly evaluate strategies without consequences? How many people know that we currently have troops serving in Iraq, the Persian Gulf, Somalia, the Golan Heights, the Sinai, Cyprus, South Korea, Afghanistan, the United Arab Emirates, and in every single state of the United States, either serving or embedded, my FOIs to find out precisely what we're doing in the Golan Heights and the United States were declined. One wonders what else Australia might have had knowledge of or been involved with overseas when in 2017 we voted against a UN resolution about the use of mercenaries as a means of violating human rights and impeding the exercise of the right of people to self-determination. And in September this year, we voted against the implementation of the recommendations contained in the report of the UN Secretary-General on the causes of conflict and the promotion of durable peace and sustainable development in Africa. We voted no, and African nations themselves voted yes. The same African nations we romanced for a time to secure a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council, then abandoned, and whom we will have to court again when we next bid for a seat on the UN Security Council in 2029-30. Given that for a successful election to UN bodies, African votes are key to reaching the required two-thirds majority. Australia's position of doing everything it can to oppose the ban on nuclear weapons because it believes we rely on US nuclear weapons as a deterrent is well known but misguided. It na naively 
ignores the scope for human error to lead to devastation and leads to an absurdly militaristic mentality as demonstrated last year when we voted against a UN resolution for further practical measures for the prevention of arms, an arms race in outer space. That was no doubt because our government's longer running enthusiasm to deepen our cooperation with the United States on hypersonics. Post COVID, Scott Morrison announced that Australia will ramp up defence spending to $270 billion over the next decade as the country prepares for a post COVID world that is poorer, more dangerous, and more disorderly. About 90 billion of that will be spent on advanced new kit, including hypersonic weapons, fighter jets, and cyber warfare capability. Australia will also put its own spy satellites in space. For the uninitiated, hypersonic missiles travel at a speed of one mile per second or more, at least five times the speed of sound. They are able to evade and conceal their precise targets from defences until just seconds before impact. This leaves targeted states with almost no time to respond. It could authorise the military rather than the national leadership to conduct retaliatory strikes, but this would raise the risk of an accidental conflict. We are enmeshed in the United States military machine. In Brian Tui's book, Secret, he states that the US requires almost all countries that buy its weapon systems, including Australia, to send sensitive components back to the US for repairs, maintenance and replacements without the owners being allowed access to critical information, including source codes needed to keep these systems operating. Australia's relationship with China, on the other hand, is at its lowest point since diplomatic relations were established in 1972. We bait and antagonise. In a July 2020 survey of how urban, educated Chinese view Australia's bilateral relations going forward, 49.5% of respondents said the United States is the biggest impediment. No doubt fueled by Murdoch media and politicians, a Pew Research, Pew Research poll on 6 October found that negative views of China increased most in Australia, where 81% now say they see the country unfavourably. Unsurprisingly, Australia abstained from voting on the yearly UN resolution about combating the glorification of Nazism, neo-Nazism and other practices that contribute to fueling contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance. Our defence and foreign policies don't seem to be underpinned by any strong or even substantial human rights values. I'm looking forward to the ideas generated by and through this inquiry. The good news is on the back of all that I've said, there's plenty of room for improvement in the defence foreign policy space. The first thing this requires is that Australia recognise and support the fact that diplomacy is vital to safeguarding our national interests. An annual spend of $28 billion on defence compared to $1 billion on diplomacy is unsustainable and moronic. Not only that, but it has been reported that a numerical deficiency in strategically minded staff at DFAT has allowed Home Affairs and Defence Departments to step in and fill the strategic void. The late former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser warned that if the United States goes to war in the Pacific, we don't have an option to stay out of it. That as it stands, the Australian Prime Minister has no capacity to stand up in Parliament and say we're going to pass this one by because of US troops in Darwin and the presence of Pine Gap. Fraser called it a total betrayal of Australian sovereignty, the Parliament and the people. He proposed giving the United States six to 12 months to put their troops somewhere else. 
and to pull out embedded troops where it would lead to a conflict of interest. He said Pine Gap would be more difficult, suggesting we give the United States four to five years to replicate Pine Gap somewhere else, but pull out Australian personnel so it becomes known that it is a US-controlled base, signalling that we're not complicit. I would also add that Australia must de demand that it be able to operate key defence systems independently of the United States. Professor of Strategic Studies at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre of the ANU, Hugh White, has already pointed that out that in 10 years from now, China's GDP will be $42.4 trillion and America's $24 trillion. That money is power and the United States will be unable to persuade or compel China to live within the rules of a regional order US has set and upheld for so long. I would like to end on climate change. Within about a decade, dealing with the consequences of climate change will be the only game in town. The recent Bushfire Royal Commission reported, report noted that warming over the next two decades is baked in. If we start acting now, which we aren't, containment is the best likely outcome. Action on climate change is in our national interests and defence acquisitions must align with that purpose. In a 2019 speech, General Campbell warned that in about 10 years from now, we can expect more significant impacts, particularly in regards to oceans, low-lying areas and human health. By itself, defence will not be able to cope with the likely concurrent events and one can only assume the same problem exists for the United States. Indeed, the Pentagon is planning for extreme temperatures, collapsing countries, wars on multiple continents, and simultaneous natural disasters in circumstances where there are not enough troops to defend the United States and to address foreign catastrophes. In short, a substantial degradation of the ability to deal with conventional military problems but in the context of a demonstrated inability of the United States government to respond properly in terms of both logistics and capacity to its own domestic crises. One must ask if a situation arose where the US has to choose between allocating scarce military resources, between preserving one of its imperial conquests and dealing with an out of control crisis at home, with the exceptionalist American psyche permit the embarrassment of an overseas withdrawal of an occupying force. Mother Nature will almost certainly force our hand to navigate our way forward independently of the United States. We shouldn't wait for a crisis to get to that point. We had better begin planning our route while it's still light. Thank you. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're hearing from some of the speakers at the recent Independent and Peaceful Australia People's Inquiry launch. We just heard from the Chair of the Inquiry, Kelly Tranter. Next, we'll hear from Professor Ian Lowe. Uh, 25 years ago, I chaired the Advisory Council that produced the first independent national report on the state of the environment, and it said that we have some serious environmental problems. Um, and four subsequent reports have said that those problems are still getting worse. And nationally as well as globally, uh, we face two critical problems. The most serious problem is the loss of biodiversity, uh, which is more serious than climate change because it's essentially irreversible. Once species are gone, they can't be brought back. During what we call the Vietnam War and what Vietnamese people call the American War, uh, I couldn't help but be aware 
of the incredible environmental damage that warfare was causing, both deliberate uh, use of agents like defoliant, but also the collateral damage of bombs, of mines, of napalm, of military hardware. And uh, so if you recognise that the most critical factor causing the loss of biodiversity is loss of habitat, we should be very concerned about what military activity does to habitat. We should also be concerned about the way military activity contaminates land and water and air and therefore puts pressure on vulnerable species. In terms of climate change, the military are huge users of fossil fuels and huge producers of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. And science is clear. Antonio Guterres told the UN General Assembly uh, last month that to have a 50-50 chance of keeping the increase in global temperature below 2 degrees, we need to be producing 45% less emissions by 2030 and to decarbonise by 2050. And that means we need to cut out needless use of fossil fuels, driving tanks around, crashing through the undergrowth to prepare for wars that we don't need. We also need to be aware of more subtle environmental issues, uh, such as the impact of radiation, impact of radiation from using depleted uranium as weapons, impact of the radiation from having nuclear-powered uh, military activity, uh, which inevitably produces radioactive waste for which we have no long-term management plan. Finally, we need to recognise that the military activity within Australia has had huge impacts on the land and culture of the first Australians. And in most cases, uh, those traditional owners were never consulted. Uh, they were never uh, brought into the loop. Uh, they were never invited to be part of the process of deciding what was done with their land. And we need to recognise the harm that has been done to their land and culture and is still being done by military activity. So I see the environmental component of this inquiry as critical, both in recognising what military activity does to the natural environment, but also in recognising what military activity has done and is still doing to our natural and cultural environment. Thank you very much. We just heard from Professor Ian Lowe, who gave an environmental perspective on the IPAN's People's Inquiry. Next, we'll hear a First Nations perspective from lecturer, NTEU and ACTU Elders Committee member, Terry Mason. I find the idea of coming onto uh, a panel with a group like this quite exciting. Um, this is an investigation, an opportunity for voices to be heard that isn't coming from a government-driven body uh, with government employees. <laughs> And I think you can all understand what I'm alluding to there. Uh, this is giving an opportunity for a diverse group uh, to gather information from original sources. Now, this is important um, that we now start including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices in this discussion. It's, it's crucial because it is sovereign land. But one of the big problems we've got is so far, a lot of the talk you'll see that involves Aboriginal people, a discrete media article, their response to an action, their response to something happening locally, 
they're not coordinated, they're not pulled together, there's no major overview. It falls into, in some ways, the way things are written, the pan-Aboriginality issue. There's an Aboriginal problem and there'll be an Aboriginal solution. Well, we know from closing the gap, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's, it's just not the way to go. Uh, and this gives people out there the opportunity to um, put in some submissions and give some informed concept uh, for the future here. Um, so I'll just raise some of the, you know, just a quick overview because we don't have much time. Um, we have a, such a diversity of relationship between Aboriginal peoples and military circumstances. We have a group in one state who have been quite happy on their land that they have on native title to allow the launch of a space vehicle to put up communication satellites. Some of those satellites will be used for military purposes. They negotiated it on their terms and they were happy with that circumstance. Another state, we have a space base being forced onto people who haven't been consulted properly as to whether they want it, where they might want it, where it might be placed, and there's conflict there. Then in another state, we've had a group who for 20 years have been trying to negotiate their relationship over Crown land that they couldn't put in land rights because everyone conflates land rights with that rotten native title that's subservient to any other competing claim. It's taken them 20 years to be able to come to an agreement that might protect some sites and some access over land that's used for military training, not just for Australians, but for overseas forces as well. So we, we have here an opportunity to hear authentic voices and start to sort through these issues and a relationship and put people in touch, communities in touch with each other, instead of them just thinking, we're alone in this um, and, and we don't have uh, much power or, or, um, or influence. We also have circumstances where we have some discrete Aboriginal units, uh, regiments in the army that bring skills and finances that are considered valuable to their community, uh, as opposed to other places where there are military bases that have done nothing but increase bigotry and racism and social mischief and strife. So we have two different views there from two different areas of the country. To me, this isn't a problem. Um, this is an opportunity now that IPAN's bringing up, for us to start getting uh, an overview and give people some understanding. Consultation matters in this circumstance when relationship to land is so fu fundamental to cultural integrity, ceremony, access sites, usage, food, water, safety, environmental impacts, financial considerations, climate change, and the list could go on and on and on. It's a it's a big issue for Aboriginal people because relationships are the basis of our society, both to land and to each other and then to everyone else. And I don't believe there has been enough of a, an oversight into the, um, the relationship with the military uh, here. So this inquiry gives a chance for diverse situations to be compared 
um, so that in the future policy and action can be uh, expressed less as supposed opinion and more from informed understanding and then informed consent. That was Terry Mason with a First Nations perspective on the IPAN's People's Inquiry. Next, we'll hear about the impacts on political and democratic rights from Barrister Greg Barnes. Uh, I'll be very brief. I'm going to be, we're going to be looking at the issue of uh, the rule of law and uh, democratic rights in the context of an independent Australia. I think it's telling to look at New Zealand uh, particularly at the moment. Uh, New Zealand, of course, moved away from the US alliance in a substantive sense back in the 1980s under David Lange, although, of course, still has some links to it, but it's much less wedded to it. Uh, and when you do that, what it enables a country to do is to create uh, a much more vigorous and vibrant democracy, but also a democracy in which uh, individual rights uh, and a commitment to the rule of law uh, becomes much more important. One of the reasons why Australia has become a deeply authoritarian society when it comes to the way in which uh, laws operate in this country, and uh, one only has to look at the war on terror and the 85 pieces of legislation since uh, 9-11. Now, one of the reasons for that is because we have simply aped the uh, the regime in the United in, in Washington. You know, we adopted the Patriot Act in the form of anti-terror laws. Uh, we adopt routinely uh, American uh, trends in preventative detention, uh, in citizenship laws, uh, which we're seeing at the moment in relation to Abel Nasser Ben Bricker, which was a case I was involved in. And um, uh, you know, the 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 issue is, of course. Why do we do that? We do that because we are so wedded to the alliance with the United States. Uh, if you've got a country like South Africa, which is, a, of course, has enormous challenges, but has an, an extraordinarily robust legal system uh, and has a very robust constitution, which is built upon uh, the values, the universal values that Mandela and others promoted, uh, it would could never have been done uh, if that nation were wedded uh, as firmly as the apartheid regime was wedded to the United States. So, in summary, uh, an independent Australia uh, means one in which we adopt laws which are committed to uh, and and underpin uh, fundamental human rights and respect for those rights, uh, and we don't trade off those rights to participate in uh, warlike measures such as uh, the never-ending war on terror. Thanks to IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, for initiating this important inquiry. The inquiry provides an opportunity and a voice to individuals and organisations whose views and concerns about Australia's involvement in US wars and the USA-Australia alliance have not been heard in the public debate. Organisations and individuals are invited to make a submission. To find out how, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au or you can email IPAN at ipan.inquiry at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. We'll post relevant links to today's show on our website and Facebook page. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. 
The Radioactive Show was produced with support of Friends of the Earth's Ace Nuclear Free Collective for 3CR on the unceded lands of the Boonarung people and it's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear, peace and energy issues.